This is 1988 Tops, where every card has a story to tell. Your hosts are David McKellis and Matt Kuzma. Let's play ball. Welcome back to 1988 Tops. David, what's our card for this week? Our card for this week, Dan Quisenberry, pitcher, the Kansas City Royals, card number 195. Dan Quisenberry, really looking forward to this one. But first, David, you have a programming note you wanted to share. With the trade deadline just passing yesterday, uh, we have an important note to share. We're making a key acquisition, the arrival of a new character on the podcast. I have not been traded for this new prospect, but I am expecting the arrival of a baby on September 1st. So I may need to take some time off. We might have some weeks off or we might have some pre-recorded episodes, but I just wanted to give listeners a heads up that if we're taking some time off, it's we didn't quit. We didn't get traded to another better podcast. We, we just maybe need to catch up on some sleep. A uh, new prospect uh, who's come in through the farm league and ready to join the squad. We're making some alterations to the clubhouse for this new arrival, crib, uh, baby batting cage, etc., and it's correct, David, we have not been traded for another podcast. However, if, you know, a, a Petro state wanted to come in and acquire the franchise, uh, you know, maybe the, like the Emirates or some, I'm open to that. So any bidders just, you know, call the president of the organization. We made the offer to trade you for Joe Rogan. It was mm. not accepted. <laughs> oh, oh, that would have been great. Would have been great. <laughs> Think of all of the supplements I could have had in my life. <laughs> also, we have some follow-up from last week's episode on Tom Glavin. Former guest, Mets fan, and Neil Allen enthusiast Mark Simon sent us a note. He said that we left out how Tom Glavin blew the division with three awful starts at the end of the 2007 season, including a dreadful loss in Game 162 in which he said he was, quote, disappointed but not devastated, which upset many Mets fans. And Mark also let us know that Glavin is doing a number of games as an analyst for the Atlanta Braves baseball television broadcast. So thank you, Mark, for that note. And I, I, I did go back to look at this run that Tom Glavin had in 2007. The Mets were up seven games in mid-September and ended up losing the NL East by one game. And that last game, Glavin gave up seven runs and didn't make it out of the first inning. And his full quote was, I'm not devastated. I'm disappointed. Devastation is for much greater things in life. Oh, man. Probably didn't go over great with oh, Mets fans. Man. Oh, yeah. That's that's going to sting a little bit. So, Mark, thank you very much for sending us that note. We hope the arrival of Javi Baez will help to salve the wounds, maybe resurfaced from the Tom Glavin episode. I've been noticing on Twitter that Mark has been focused very much on the defensive prowess of the Mets team, and you've just added an amazing infielder. Uh, so good luck to you. Uh, and and also, don't tell baseball fans that devastation is for greater things in life than baseball. If you look at Cubs Twitter in full meltdown right now over <laughs> the fire sale. But thank yeah. you, Mark, for that note. No, we always appreciate it. So back to today's card, Dan Quisenberry, number 195. 
And it was a recommendation from a listener, a friend of the pod, and in fact, best man of the pod, at Cody Sims. Cody is a host of the Techstars Climate Tech Podcast. And when we were trading story ideas with each other over email, he said, I was a Royals fan, so I immediately thought of Bo Jackson and George Brett because I remember what those cards look like. So I Googled 1988 Royals, and then I saw Kevin Seitzer, who was Rookie of the Year, I think, with a little trophy on his card. But then I saw Quiz, sidearm pitcher, perfect mustache, stirrups, and I thought, yeah, this one. And we actually got a second request through email from an unnamed Red Sox fan. And they said, Dan Quisenberry would be a nice one to hear about. So thank you, Cody and the unnamed Red Sox fan. Looking at this card, I think that when I was eight years old, I looked at the back of this card and saw all of these saves, and then looked at the front and saw this sidearm pitcher with a mustache, and that was my vision of what a closer looked like. Dan Quisenberry. He was the best closer in baseball for a few years, a world champ, and a poet. And we'll go through some bits of his poetry as we go through this, and this might be the episode that I cry on the most, so I'm going to give a warning up front. <laughs> Trigger warning for anybody who doesn't want to hear me sobbing. <laughs> yeah, it certainly uh, brought tears in prepping this in this episode today, David. And first we start with the front of the card. It's just a great-looking card. As Cody mentioned, the mustache, you've got the prominent stirrups, you've got the powder blue Royals uniform, you've got Dan Quisenberry in mid delivery with that submarine action very low uh, to the ground and his hat pulled over his eyes so you can really only see half of one eye yeah this is just just a great look a look of determination a great 80s mustache not an intimidating figure on the mound not an imposing guy and not a, a power pitcher either. There's just something very nice about this card. One other note, David, that I've reviewed actually on another podcast. I have a podcast on typeface called Kerning Learning. And we didn't get a chance to talk about this on the Ray Quinones episode. But this is, I think, only the second Q letter that we've seen in a name so far in our series. And the capital Q on the 1988 Topps card is a very strange look where the tail of the cue is very, very subtle. And so you could be excused for thinking his name was Dan Oisenberry. <laughs> That's more difficult to pronounce. It was very difficult. <laughs> there are not that many players with Q last names. We've gone through two of them, but only 55 players on Baseball Reference with Q last names there's one guy on that list whose name is just listed as Quinn. And he played in two <laughs> games in 1875 and is from Parts Unknown. So Quinn, <laughs> not quite as prolific as Ray Quinones or Dan Quisenberry or Jamie Quirk, for that matter. And Jamie Quirk and Dan Quisenberry in 1980 would be the first QQ battery mates. Mm, mm. Fascinating. Now flipping to the back of the card for Dan Quisenberry, 195, height 6'2", weight 180, right-handed batter and thrower. Signed by the Royals as a free agent in 1975. Born February 7th, 1953 in Santa Monica, California with a home in Leewood, Kansas. 
Again, we have to recognize the great work done by the Sabre biographers, in this case, Steve Wolf, senior writer at ESPN, who also wrote some very early profiles of Quisenberry in his career and interviewed Quisenberry early in his career as well, as, as well as Joe Posnanski, who wrote a piece for The Athletic about his favorite baseball player, Dan Quisenberry. So we'll be referring to those. And along with Joe Posnanski's favorite, I think that Dan Quisenberry will be a favorite of pod listeners and 1988 Tops hosts as well. So Matt, that name, Quisenberry, there is no Quisenberry. It's not a poison. <laughs> it's not an actual berry? No, not an actual berry. This was the anglification of a village in Germany, Questenberg. Dan found that out later in his life doing a genealogy study that he was of German descent. And he said he was born in Santa Monica. And Santa Monica, one might live beside the ocean and watch the world die. <laughs> but that's where he was born. He grew up in Costa Mesa. I don't know if there's any songs about Costa Mesa. I'm sure that Everclear could write one. It would sound like all the rest of their songs. <laughs> Dan had a, a older brother named Marty. His parents divorced when they were seven and nine, respectively. And his mother, Roberta, was a single parent who was working for Revlon before she remarried. And she wanted the kids to be ballroom dancers. That ballroom dancing dream was pushed aside when the sons were encouraged to play baseball, and both of them were good baseball players. They went to Costa Mesa High. Marty was the better pitcher growing up and was also a submarine pitcher, or at least a side armor. And he ended up going to Orange Coast Community College and then to Southern California College, where he was scouted by the Royals. He threw his arm out and ended up going into the ministry. Dan followed his brother to Orange Coast Community College. Other alums of Orange Coast Community College include Damon Berryhill and Diane Keaton. And Dan was the MVP of his team at OCCC and was later recruited by Ben Hines to transfer to Laverne College. Ben Hines was the head coach of that Laverne College team and created a little bit of a dynasty at Laverne College in a small school that won the 1972 NAIA title. He was also later the hitting coach for the Dodgers in 1988 when they won the World Series. At Laverne College, Dan majored in business, religion, sociology, psychology, and history. That's quite a course load for Dan Quisenberry. And he's square dancing. He majored in business, religion, sociology, <laughs> psychology, and history. I don't know how that works. That's a lot of that's a lot of school. I, that's that's too many majors. But as we'll learn, Dan, a very bright guy and a very interesting guy. He took this square dancing course because Coach Hines told him that it would improve his balance and footwork. It was a fortuitous class for Dan to take. He met a woman in the class named Janie, and they would go on to get married. Quisenberry said that he had been an angry young man or a hot-headed young man, and he calmed down for two reasons, and those two reasons were Janie and Christianity. And Dan was... A devoutly religious and a devoted husband throughout his life. On the baseball field at Laverne, he pitched two seasons, and he was 12-2 and two and 19-7, and seven, and he pitched 194 innings as a senior, which, looking at the rest of his career, that's quite a, a workload for a guy who would end up being a closer, but at this point, he was a starting pitcher, and that workload probably contributed to his arm dropping from a more 
natural overhand position to closer to a sidearm position. In his final season at Laverne College, Dan was an NAIA All-American, but he didn't get much uh, recognition from big league scouts. But that takes us to the this way to the clubhouse on the card, which is that Dan signed as an undrafted free agent with the Kansas City Royals June 7th, 1975 by scout Rosie Gilhausen. Rosie Gilhausen was the same scout who was looking at Marty Quisenberry, and he had contacts with Coach Hines at Laverne College and told him, you know, I have an opening at single A Waterloo for a pitcher. And he said, if this guy gets here within an hour, he's got the spot. So, <laughs> <laughs> so Q hops in his gremlin and drove there in 10 minutes. He said he was given $500 a month. His bonus was a Royals bat, a Royals pen, and a lapel button. And he was pretty excited, especially about the lapel button. <laughs> it seems like a great deal for a prospect that was probably not going to get drafted. He makes that move to Waterloo, Iowa two weeks later, and his minor league career begins. He got baptized at a church in Waterloo, Iowa, and then made his first start on that same day. He got a complete game victory in his first game, and that was the only game he started in his professional career. <laughs> Immediately after that game, he sent to the bullpen, and, and he said that he thought that that was a demotion. So he really didn't expect to get much further. The manager at A-level said this is probably his only chance to get to the big leagues if we send him to the minors. But nobody thought that this guy was major league material. He was throwing 80-mile-per-hour fastballs. He had a weird look about him when he pitched. And and Willie Wilson was his teammate and also said, I never guessed that that guy would make it to the major leagues. But moving to the bullpen was his best chance. And I didn't say this earlier, but you know, throughout here we'll refer to him as either Quiz or Q, known as both Q or Quiz or Dan. Pretty good nickname, too. That move to the bullpen was fortuitous, and Quisenberry was good that first year in, in A-ball and, and got moved up to double-A within that first year. In a combined 26 games, he had a 2.42 ERA. Next season, he splits time between A and double-A. But after that 76 season, he got married, was living in Idaho in the off-season, and working at a morgue, <laughs> loading bodies into hearses, as well as working at a at a sporting goods store during the day. For 77 and 78, he was stuck in double-A, and he was operating as a closer. Still wasn't an overpowering pitcher, but he had good control. In parts of four seasons, he had a 1.88 ERA and a 1.057 whip in double-A. But in that winter of 1978, he was ready to give up. And later in his career, he said, it sounds like a cliche, but he went to school to get a teaching certificate. He was going to be a history teacher, maybe coach some baseball. He was ready to quit if he didn't make it to AAA. But he made it to AAA. He ends up getting assigned to AAA Omaha coming out of 1979 spring training. So those history students would need a different teacher. The Royals needed an arm after an injury in the farm system. So Quisenberry was the next man up in AAA. And he ends up making the big leagues against all odds, against all reason. And according to the Royals GM, the truth of the matter is that we didn't have anybody else. 
<laughs> Necessity is the mother of invention, and in this case, she was the mother of Dan Quisenberry. <laughs> that is a great quote. He makes his first appearance in 1979 in a loss to the White Sox. And according to George Brett, he looked funny. He threw funny. He was funny. And I wanted to know why we didn't go out and trade for somebody. <laughs> and now I know. <laughs> and this was a good Royals team that he's coming into. They had made the playoffs a few seasons in a row. And so George Brett's right to think, like, why are we just bringing up this side-armed guy who throws 80 miles per hour from AAA? But he was good. He pitched in 32 games and had a 137 ERA plus, And he had his first baseball card. He was a future star at 26. <laughs> Quiz said that he only had one pitch, a sidearm sinker. And he had some ineffective breaking balls, but mostly he just threw sinkers. When he first came up, Whitey Herzog told him to throw a curve, and he said, I don't throw a curve. He threw one pitch. <laughs> he had a, a fastball that was 80 miles per hour and, and a sinker. But he was effective. He was very effective. And going into that 1980 season, the Royals made a management change, hiring Jim Fry and firing Whitey Herzog. We've talked about the 1979 World Series. Jim Fry was a coach with the Orioles who had just lost to Teak and the Pittsburgh Pirates. And so after a rough outing in spring training, Fry asked Teak, we want this guy to be like you. He throws a little like you already, but basically he doesn't have... <laughs> you can bleep that out. Right? <laughs> yeah. Um, and Teak agreed to help him. Quiz drops his arm even lower to submarine like Teak. And this new motion was described as a flamingo falling over. And you can see it on the front of this card. It's a weird look. He doesn't quite look as tall and lanky as, as Teak, but he was throwing the ball almost on the ground. And he said that the ball in that first training session was all over the place. He didn't think that this was going to help him out at all. But in the next outing, he did pretty well. And he was able to maintain his accuracy. And over the years, he would develop new pitches. So he would try a slider or a changeup. He even tried a knuckleball to go along with that fastball and sinker. So looking at the card at the 1980 stat line, he ended up league leader or tied for the league lead in games pitched and 33 saves. So those changes helped for sure. He came into 41 games in which the Royals were leading and they won all but two. He ended up getting votes for Cy Young and MVP. He was really great, but not traditionally what we expect from a closer. He only struck out 37 guys. He gave up 129 hits, so over a hit an inning, but he only walked 27 batters. This performance helped the Royals go on to win 97 games and win the AL West. Now, this is a Royals team that had lost to the Yankees in three straight ALCSs in 76, 77, and 78. So it's a rematch in 1980. The Royals end up winning the first two games in Kansas City, and go to New York to attempt the sweep. In the bottom of the six, it's one nothing Royals with a man on second, and Quiz is brought in to shut it down. He gives up a single that scores the tying run, and an error put a man on third, and then Quiz gave up the go-ahead run. So now the Royals are down 2-1, to one, and maybe we'll turn over to Quiz from his poem, A Career. And he said... 
I was looking up when George Brett hit a Ruthian blast off a guy who threw as hard as God. Willie Randolph took a called third. Why didn't he swing? It was right there, and we were series bound. George Brett hits a dramatic home run. Quisenberry gets the save. World Series, Royals. Unfortunately, Jim Fry decided to pitch Q in every game of the World Series. (laughs) Oh, man. And according to Pete Rose, the guy is giving us the World Series by letting us look at Quisenberry's delivery so much. Mm -hmm. Quiz got a win and a save in games three and four, but took two losses, games two and five. And so after losing to the Phillies in game five to go down three to two, Quiz said, we have our backs against the Berlin Wall, east side. Oh, man, that is such a history teacher line. (laughs) Of course, this guy with the push broom mustache would make some Cold War references. Game six, he's on the mound for the scoreless eighth inning, but the Phillies win the game 4-1 and take the series title in 1980. So a World Series loss for the Royals, but Quiz will be back. 1981, the season doesn't start as great. As he's negotiating his own contract, was contract negotiation one of his five majors in college, David? I assume he had an agent to take care of this, but he was pushing for a multi-year deal. The Royals only offered him one year. He ended up getting one year, $100,000. I need to look back at 1981 and what that meant. You know, this is a guy coming off a season where he leads the league in saves. Maybe closers weren't quite as valued in 1981, but a decent deal and he would be repaid for his commitment to the Royals later in his career. He was also the Royals player representative in collective bargaining. And this is the strike year. And he's a new dad. His first child was born in 1980. His second was born in 1981. So he's, he's busy. And in the first half of that season, the Royals were 20 and 30. Quisenberry was okay. He had an ERA close to three. And then the strike happened. And the second half of that season, the Royals returned and won the AL West, so they made it to the playoffs with that second-half win. Quisenberry had 20 appearances in the second half of the season, an ERA of .79. Unfortunately, the Royals were sl- were swept in the ALDS. Quisenberry went to salary arbitration looking for nearly $500,000 a year. He lost and got 300000 for one year. That's a pretty good bump from 100,000. So good job, Quiz. 1982, he leads the AL in saves again with 35. This is the first of four straight seasons where he leads the league in saves. He only walked 12 players in 136 innings, which is incredible. He finishes third in the Cy Young voting and again got some MVP votes. And I don't have the individual season numbers here, but when we get to his career retrospective, even those ridiculous low walk numbers are deceptive because he had a lot of intentional walks. So he is, he is historically great with his command and control. And after that season, he's rewarded with a four-year deal worth $3.2 million. So he finally gets his good payout. He won the Rolades Relief Man. And at that ceremony where he's went to pick up that trophy, he told some jokes. He said, I'd like to thank 
umpire Al Clark, who's in the audience, for giving me a National League strike zone, the Royals pitchers who couldn't go nine innings, and Dick Hauser for not letting them. <laughs> he was known for his wit and his sense of humor. Joe Piscopo said he was better than I was. I I agree. <laughs> <laughs> yes, uh, when Joe Piscopo's hosting your award ceremony... There was an episode of Star Trek The Next Generation where Joe Piscopo taught Data about humor. <laughs> oh. Oh. Uh, that's lovely. Quiz summed up his season with 30 saves, 30 strikeouts, and 30 great plays behind me. And he was he regularly gave credit to the great defense behind him from Frank White and Willie Wilson and others on that team. So 1982, fantastic year for him. 1983, he did even more. He set the record for the most saves in a season with 45, and that record would end up being broken, but this was truly an amazing season for him. This was before the time of the single-inning reliever, and so in in 69 games, Q pitched 139 innings. So over two innings per appearance, just amazing for a closer. 11 walks, two of them were intentional, no hit batters, no wild pitches. And he only gave up a home run every 26 innings. So he just kept the ball low and kept the ball on the ground. He finished second in Cy Young voting that year to Lamar Hoyt of the White Sox. But his war was actually better than than Hoyt's, which is amazing for a closer. He had 5.5 wins above replacement. Second for pitchers, only to Dave Steeb. Unfortunately for Quisenberry, his team finished 20 games behind the White Sox. So, the, of course, the ace of the White Sox staff in 1983, Lamar Hoyt, wins the Cy Young Award. Around this time, Quisenberry did start to feel some pressure. And he said that the game was a little bit more difficult for him. And early in his career, nothing much is expected of a guy who isn't throwing for power and isn't a a top prospect. But he said at this point that pressure to close out games meant that he felt guilty if he blew saves. He said, I don't want to sound depressing, and I'm only talking about maybe 10% of the games I'm in that I don't do the job. It's just that I've come to expect a lot out of myself, so when everything goes right and I get the save, I'm the one who's saved. And truly has some poetic phrases and some great quotes. 1984 is more of the same. 44 saves, wins another Rolades Relief Man Award, second in the Cy Young voting again, and third in MVP voting. Uh, The Royals get swept by the Tigers in the ALCS, but yet another dominating season for Quisenberry. In 1984, Willie Hernandez won the MVP and the Cy Young, so it was a big year for relievers. Willie Hernandez had an amazing season. And his team ended up beating the Tigers in the ALCS. So maybe showing that he was the better closer. 1985, which is a year of peak Quisenberry and peak Royals, we first start with a very shady financial deal (laughs) that Royals management ends up making with Quisenberry. He was signed to a lifetime contract by the Royals. (laughs) And... At this point, their minority owner was a guy named Avrin Fogelman, who was a real estate developer. And in 1984, they signed George Brett to a lifetime contract 
So then in 85, they do the same for Quisenberry and Willie Wilson. And this deal was really weird. (laughs) (laughs) Quisenberry got $6 million for five seasons, and he could invest $2.6 million of his salary in Fogelman's real estate holdings, and then he was guaranteed $45.85 million over 41 years. This is like Bobby Bonilla territory. This is scam territory, David. This is real estate developer puffery is what's going on here. This definitely would not stand the financial fair play rules of of international soccer. This is really sketchy. And the, the deals were supposed to go through 2026. But the real estate development that Quisenberry and Willie Wilson were supposed to be paid out of was an apartment building in Nashville. Quisen- <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's where I think, you know, $90 million of revenue is going to come from an apartment building in Nashville. <laughs> yeah. Quisenberry owned 24.7% of this apartment building, and that share was worth $4.9 million by 1990, so much less than the guaranteed amount. Both of the players by 1990, Wilson and Quisenberry, were at the end of their contracts and had been let go by the Royals. So they, when Fogelman runs into financial problems, Quisenberry and Wilson go to the Royals to get their money, and they ended up settling on the amount that was owed to them. The other owner of the club who made the ill-fated decision to bring in Avron Fogelman was Ewing Kaufman of Kaufman Stadium fame, and he said, I'd prefer not to announce any figures because they're ridiculous. But let's just say Quisenberry and Wilson were well paid for this weird lifetime deal, and hopefully this is not a thing that owners are doing, even though the Wilpons were involved in the Ponzi scheme of Bernie Madoff. Sketchy contract aside, this was peak Royals and peak Quiz. He is at the height of his powers. At this point, he is... The relief pitcher. He is the fireman. And playing into that, he would spray fans with a hose on hot summer days. <laughs> Quite the character and a fan favorite. And part of that is because of this 1985 season. The Royals won the AL West by one game over the Angels with a 91-71 and record. Q again leads the American League with 37 saves and a 2.37 ERA. But he also had 12 blown saves that season and was starting to lose the faith of his manager. The Royals faced the Blue Jays, who had a better regular season record in the ALCS. And they went down two games to zero and then three games to one. So on the verge of elimination in game five, they come back to win in seven games. Q had a loss in game two but closed out games six and seven to help Kansas City make another World Series. And that World Series was the Show Me State Series or the I-70 Showdown Series. All of these fun names for something just because the two teams were in the same state. So the Royals versus John Tudor, Jack Clark, Ozzie Smith, that blankety-blank Andy Vance like that we mentioned recently, and the Cardinals. This is the second All-Missouri Series after the 1944 World Series between the Cardinals and the Browns. And Quiz pitched in three non-save situations in games 1, 2, and 4. 
And those are all games that the Cardinals won. And they went up three games to one in the World Series. In Game 6, Dick Hauser left Charlie Liebrandt in the game into the eighth inning of a 0-0 pitcher's duel. Liebrandt was even allowed to bat in the bottom of the seventh. And Q wasn't happy about it. He thought Liebrandt should have been pitch hit for and that he should have been brought in to pitch in the eighth inning. Liebrandt ends up giving up a run in the eighth. And Quiz does come on to get the last out in the eighth inning. And then he puts the Cardinals down in the ninth. That Don Denkinger call on George Orta happened in the bottom of the ninth and led to two runs for KC. And Quiz was the pitcher of record, so he recorded a win in Game 6 of the World Series. Game 7 is closed out by Brett Saberhagen pitching a complete game. And back to Q's poem, A Career, I was looking up when it was a cool night in October. Daryl Motley caught a lazy fly off Andy Van Slyke's bat. Kansas City delirious as champs. We poured champagne on sweat-soaked heads. It burned our eyes. We didn't care. We screamed, we sang, we laughed, drunk with victory. And it was a fantastic victory. They end up getting a call from President Ronald Reagan, who called and congratulated the team. When he made the call to the victorious clubhouse, he congratulated, among others, Jim Quisenberry. And later at the White House, Reagan apologized and Quisenberry replied, that's okay, Don. Pretty good. And I think that might also have been a reference to Don Regan, who was the White House chief of staff. I'm sure that's what he meant. I'm sure that's it what might, he meant. Quisenberry is clever. He's a clever guy. 1986 was a tumultuous one for Quiz and for the team overall. They start the season using a closer rotation. And so, while he has 62 appearances and a 2.77 ERA, he only had 12 saves. So, like you had mentioned, David, he's lost a little bit of the faith of his manager as the closer. And that manager, Dick Hauser, left the team at the All-Star break. He had a brain tumor. He had surgery, but he would die within the year at age 51. And this was pretty traumatic for the team and for Quisenberry, who had just won the World Series with Hauser in charge. The team finished under 500 in the midst of this tragic situation. In 1987, Dan's role is further reduced, only eight saves, only 47 games, and a 2.76 ERA. And in 1988, he's released on the 4th of July after only appearing in 20 games and ends up getting picked up by the Cardinals. He was reunited with his first manager, Whitey Herzog. And Whitey had given him the his first chance in the major leagues, and Q was happy to be back managed by Whitey Herzog. But he wasn't great in 33 games. He had a 6.16 ERA with the Cardinals that year. And in his time with the Royals, his ERA was 2.55. So during this time period, when things are starting to decline for Dan... It ends up being referenced in one of his poems that we'll get to at the end of the show. This intimidating pitcher, the one with the hat pulled low over his eyes that looks looks so fierce. Really, this is a really tough time in 87 and 88 that things are declining for him. And Matt, I said earlier on that I thought this is what a closer looked like. And because I remember Dan Quisenberry from this card, I always remember him as a royal. And didn't realize that when I would have been trading this card, he had been released. 
he wasn't the closer anymore. He wasn't dominant. He was just some other relief pitcher now on the other team in Missouri, the team that was his rival in the 85 World Series. And so that all of that black ink is, is really deceptive on this card. In 1989, the Cardinals bring Quisenberry back, and he has a better performance in 89. 2.64 ERA, six saves. He did pitch in a lot of losses. This is a 500 team. And after this season, he ends up being released by the Cardinals, and he thought he was done. He walked out of that clubhouse and and thought that his career was over, but he did sign a two-year deal with the San Francisco Giants. Unfortunately, he only appeared in five games in 1990 with a 13.5 ERA. At that point, he decided it was time to call it a career. And in a career, he says... I was looking up when I sat at a table with reporters, telling them I quit, telling myself, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry. I didn't want to break the unwritten code of big leaguers. So closing the book on Dan Quisenberry's career, 244 saves. He led the league five times, a 56 and 46 win-loss record, and a 2.76 ERA Three-time All-Star, top five in the Cy Young voting five times. That's particularly impressive. I was looking at closers who got Cy Young votes. He has more win shares for Cy Young awards than any other closer. Among pitchers with 1,000-plus innings, he has the third-best walks per nine innings after Babe Adams and current pitcher Josh Tomlin, 21st if you include dead ball pitchers. He walked... 162 total in his career. Of those, 70 were intentional. Just amazing control. He has the 13th best ERA plus of any pitcher with 1,000 plus innings. 146. He's truly a great pitcher. According to Bill James, there has never been a pitcher who made fewer mistakes than Dan Quisenberry. He had only four wild pitches his whole career. Only two pitchers with more than 200 saves, gave up fewer home runs per nine innings. Mariano Rivera and Dave Smith. So really, unfortunately, he didn't close for more seasons. If he had, his compiled stats might have looked better on a Hall of Fame resume. Yeah, and without 300 saves, it wasn't a compelling enough case. In 1996, his first year on the Hall of Fame ballot, he didn't get the 5% needed to remain on the ballot for a second year. His case was evaluated by the Expansion Era Committee in 2013, but he didn't get the votes then. His numbers were very similar to Bruce Souter, but he didn't have the 300 save number, which is just a magic number to have for a reliever. And really a couple more seasons as a full-time closer, he would have hit 300 saves and probably would have had a compelling case for the Hall of Fame. I think some of his teammates believe that he should have been in the Hall of Fame anyways. I think if we're getting into a hall of fun, I think Dan Quisenberry belongs in there. (laughs) Just as to see that mustache on the wall would be a great thing to see in the Hall of Fame. What about during his retirement? When he announced his retirement, he told reporters, I've got a big pile of laundry I've wanted to get to. (laughs) But he did more than just laundry. He played golf. He wrote poetry. He hosted a poetry night at the public library. And... In one report, he would just sit there and give people positive feedback about poetry, which is just, like, so lovely. Oh, man. That's so (laughs) nice. Just such a nice guy. He worked with the Harvester's Food Bank, and we'll have a a link to their website here as well. And 
During his career, he had set up the Quisenberry Relief Fund to benefit that food bank in the Kansas City area, and he hosted a celebrity charity golf outing. And he published a book of poems on days like these. And some of them are about baseball, and some of them are about life. Some of them are about his kids. And and actually, that 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 book of poems was well-reviewed. It has a pretty good rating on Goodreads. I, I don't know. I've enjoyed some of these poems, but they're also... Knowing about Dan Quisenberry, they're tearjerkers. Yeah, the tearjerkers because his life was cut short, David. On a snowboarding trip in early 1998, he started having blurry vision. He thought maybe it was due to a fall that he took on the slopes, but he got it checked out and it turns out it was a tumor. And this tumor was malignant and aggressive. He had cancer of the brain and he tried to fight it and like his old manager, Dick Hauser, he, he knew that there wasn't a lot of time. He had multiple surgeries, aggressive treatments, but he maintained his sense of humor. He said that his kids would drive him around. He said, I feel like a dog. I get to stick my head out the window and let the wind flap my ears. It's great. George Brett visited, visited Dan during this time and said, why you? And Quiz's response was always, why not me? I can handle this. And for a guy who would be brought in in the eighth and ninth inning of games with runners on base, with the bases loaded, who could get out of jams, who also had a deep faith in God. Um, Quisenberry believed that he could get through it. And if he couldn't get through it, he knew that there was something better on the other side for him. So May of 1998, he was inducted into the Royals Hall of Fame. They honored him on the field. His teammates were there and his, his head was shaved and he was slowed by his disease. But his wit was still there. He said it had been a long time since he had a good year. But he also said he remembered his way to the pitcher's mound. And <laughs> at the end of that ceremony, a full house at Kauffman Stadium cheering for him, his teammates cheering for him, tears all around. And he was asked if there was a lesson in all of this. And after asking the reporter to define this, he kind of brushed that aside but then was talking later about his accomplishments. And he said, I don't think about those things because I needed so much help. I needed a great wife. I needed Willie Wilson in center. I needed a great second baseman like Frank White. We need each other. That's the lesson. In September of that year, he died at age 45. So Dan Quisenberry, a, a guy with an 80-mile-an-hour fastball that no one expected to be pro led an extraordinary life and an unexpected life and one that was far too short. Yeah, he was just this like smart and weird and kind person. And there was a radio program and somebody called into this radio program and said when they were a kid, they recognized Dan Quisenberry at the supermarket. And they talked to him for a minute and Quisenberry said, do you have your glove? And the kid did. And he Quisenberry went out to the parking lot and played catch with this kid in the parking lot. And um, he had the opportunity to put his life into words. And that's something that maybe we don't get a lot of on this podcast. We have to make the story or tie the story together. But Quisenberry did that with his poems, with his quotes, with um, just, uh, yeah, he, he made this easy and difficult for us. So... In a minute, I'm going to read one of his poems. It's kind of long, so it's a little different for the show. But first, I just want to say, in going through this story, the whole reason we do this podcast is because 
behind the card, there's a story of a real person. And just like with any of these cards, when you're kids, you have no idea what this person is like. And I could never have imagined, you know, when Cody and I both lived in Kansas and, you know, when this card came out, that one day I would be 44, almost 45, going back through the story of someone who has a, has a story like this. And it's just a pretty amazing thing to be able to tell. So it's a, it's a real gift what, what Quiz left behind with his words and also with the life that he lived. I'm going to read this poem. We're just going to have to call it the official poem of the 1988 Tops podcast because it's called Baseball Cards. That first baseball card, I saw myself in a triage of rookies atop the bodies that made the hill we played king of. I am the older one, the one on the right. Game face, sincere, long red hair, unkempt, a symbol of the 70s, somehow a sign of manhood. You don't see how my knees shook on my debut or my desperation to make it. The second one, I look boyish with a gap-toothed smile, the smile of a guy who has it his way, expects it. I rode the wave's crest of pennant and trophies. I sat relaxed with one thought, I can do this. You don't see me stay up till two, reining in nerves or post-game hands that shook involuntarily. Glory years catch action shots, arm whips and body contortions, a human catapult, the backs of those cards cite numbers that tell stories of saves, wins, flags, records, handshakes, butt slaps, celebration mobs. You can't see the cost of winning. Lines on my forehead under the hat, trench line between my eyes. You don't see my wife, daughter, and son left behind. The last few cards, I do not smile. I grim face the camera, tight-lipped, no more forced poses to win fans, eyes squint, scanning distance, crow's feet turn into eagle's claws. You don't see the quiver in my heart, knowledge that it is over, just playing out the end. I look back at who I thought I was or used to be. Now, trying to be funny, I tell folks, I used to be famous, I used to be good. They say, we thought you were bigger. I say, I was. An amazing player, an amazing man, and an amazing card. So we want to thank at Cody Sims for the request. David, thank you for this story. And if you write your tweets in iambic pentameter, we would love to hear from you. We're on Twitter at Tops1988. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next week.